Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. I'm recording this, by the way, in the wake of the great snowstorm in Portland. Uh, We actually had the second largest amount of snow uh, in recorded Portland history. Uh, We got 11 and a half inches or so on one day. I know those of you in Buffalo and Rochester are shaking your heads and saying something like wimps, but... That was a lot for Portland, but we've dug out, all is well, ready to move forward. And moving forward in this case means I'm going to start with marijuana. Uh, We've got an interesting medical marijuana case come out that has recently come out of the city of Waterbury, Connecticut. Now, let me set the stage a little bit for this. We're now at the point where 37 states Uh, have allowed the use of medical marijuana. 21 states have completely uh, legalized the use of recreational marijuana. And in many of those states, you hear the discussion of what about public safety employees? What about police? What about fire? What about EMS? What about corrections officers? Can their employers still prohibit Uh, employees from the off-duty recreational use of marijuana that has no impact on the performance of their job when they next show up for work. And we actually don't have many cases since we've been on this binge of legalizing marijuana around the country. There's very, very few Uh, we have seen some pretty interesting results depending upon how the legalization statute is worded. Most notably, we've seen interesting results from the states of uh, New Jersey and New York. In New York, NYPD, for a very brief period of time in 2022, by brief I mean a day or two, Uh, somebody in New York City decided, uh, look, because we now have recreational marijuana in New York, we can no longer test for marijuana in our random drug tests that we give to NYPD. That lasted like a day or two. Uh, There was a big public discussion about it, and the city completely backtracked and said, Uh, forget the last 48 hours, we're going to go back to testing for uh, marijuana use in our random drug testing program. Not so the controversy in New Jersey, where uh, things have been much more enduring. Uh, Everything started in New Jersey with the passage of a recreational marijuana bill, and this bill had a kind of unusual provision in that it created off-duty marijuana use as a protected class for purposes of discrimination law. Put another way, uh, the statute said no employer can discriminate against an employee for the off-duty recreational use of marijuana. Now, 
Could you, under the statute, uh, discriminate against somebody who showed up for work stoned? Sure, absolutely. There's a clear distinction between on-duty use and off-duty use. Well, immediately after this statute was passed, people started asking, what about the lack of exceptions in this statute? Uh, there's nothing that says that police and fire and corrections are treated any differently than any other kind of employee. And the attorney general's office in New York weighed in on this, excuse me, in New Jersey, weighed in on this issue uh, late last year with a letter sent to all law enforcement agencies in the state. Now, New Jersey's an unusual state in terms of its government in a lot of different ways. And one of them is the attorney general in New Jersey seems to have almost lawmaking authority in some areas. Uh, certainly, it's a much more powerful position than you see in most any other state. So it's not at all unusual in New Jersey to see the New Jersey Attorney General's office weighing in on some issues that in another state would be the province of local employers or perhaps a police standards and training board or somebody else. Well, late last year, the New Jersey AG said, you know what, the absence of any special treatment for police and fire and corrections means that employers of those types of employees may not discipline them for their off-duty recreational use of marijuana. Well, uh, when that happens, when that letter goes out, that means that all law enforcement agencies in the state have to comply with the terms of that letter. There's a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth about that. A lot of law enforcement agencies uh, disagreed with what the AG had to say. But as of last week, and I checked at the end of last week, that letter still has the force of law. Many law enforcement agencies in New Jersey are no longer testing for the recreational use of marijuana. Uh, there is talk that the legislature might step in and make an exception for public safety. The governor has said he will sign it if the legislature does that, but it hasn't happened yet. So for right now, New Jersey state law forbids a public safety employer from disciplining an employee for the off-duty possession and use of marijuana. Well, how's that going to work? Because marijuana is, of course, a scheduled drug at the federal level, meaning possession of marijuana at the federal level actually is a federal crime. And the answer is we don't know. We haven't seen any cases on that whatsoever. I know there's bills that are uh, popping around Congress that would allow on a state-by-state -state basis the legalization of marijuana, but so far those bills haven't made it pretty far, and we just simply don't know where 
all of that is going to finally come out. But we do have this new case, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so this is a case, as I mentioned, out of Connecticut. Uh, it's a firefighter case out of the city of Waterbury, Connecticut. And it involves somebody by the name of Thomas Eccleston II. Uh, Eccleston had a pretty troubled career when he worked for the fire department. Uh, and the problem dealt with his alcohol abuse and domestic violence. In 2015, Eccleston signs a last chance agreement with the city and his union. This last chance agreement has a, a number of stipulations about Eccleston's employment, including one that says that Eccleston can be, quote, immediately terminated if he tests positive for a controlled substance. Okay? So, uh, Eccleston, afterwards, maybe forgetting about this or maybe uh, kind of feeling his oats when uh, Connecticut becomes a medical marijuana state, uh, Eccleston goes out and is prescribed and begins lawfully using medical marijuana. He's fully complying with the state law. State law is called the Palliative Use of Marijuana Act, or PUMA. Uh, following a random test that's administered three years later, uh, Eccleston shows up positive for marijuana, and he's fired for violating the last chance agreement. Uh, Eccleston then files for unemployment. So this is not an appeal of his termination. That would be the juicier case, right? This is instead an appeal of the city's denial of his request for unemployment compensation. Now, I need to talk to you a little bit about unemployment compensation and the standards for denial. Uh, we often think that if you're fired, for whatever reason, uh, you can apply for and get unemployment uh, compensation for whatever number of weeks are applicable in your state. And that's not true. It may be true somewhere, I don't know, but that's, it's close to being true, but it's not really true because there's an exception to the notion that everybody gets benefits when they're fired. Everybody gets unemployment compensation. And the exception is what's known as the misconduct exception. If the employee engages in willful misconduct, and that term is defined in every state, if the employee engages in willful misconduct, then the employee forfeits their workers' comp excuse me, unemployment compensation rights. So what is willful misconduct? Uh, Connecticut has a statute that's pretty similar to those in various other states. It defines willful misconduct as, and I'm quoting, a knowing violation of a reasonable and uniformly enforced rule or policy of the employer provided that such violation is not a result of the employee's incompetence. So you need a 
for something to be willful misconduct, a knowing violation of an employer rule. But the rule has to be reasonable to trigger the misconduct exception. So this eventually makes it to the Connecticut Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals says, give Eccleston his unemployment benefits. Why? What's the rationale of the court? Uh, and here's what the court says. Uh, under PUMA, the acronym for the medical marijuana law, a qualifying patient who has a valid registration certificate from the Department of Consumer Protection and complies with PUMA shall not be subject to arrest or prosecution penalized in any manner, including, but not limited to, being subject to any civil penalty or denied any right or privilege, including, but not limited to, being subject to any disciplinary action by a professional licensing board for the palliative use of marijuana. Wow, that's pretty broad, right? And so the court ends up saying that the Unemployment Compensation Board, and I'm quoting, reasonably concluded that insofar as the last chance agreement operated to allow the city to terminate Eccleston's employment for his palliative use of marijuana, it was unreasonable. The unreasonable application of the last chance agreement forecloses the possibility that Eccleston's employment was terminated for willful misconduct. Eccleston gets benefits. Now, a couple of things. First of all, we have, as I think Robert Frost once wrote, miles to go before we sleep on this thing, right? Uh, we're going to see many, many more cases uh, from around the country. Obviously, the federal government can act by removing marijuana as a scheduled drug. Uh, also, obviously, states can act in different ways, writing different forms of statutes. I will tell you, though, that as a general principle, the fact that the use of a drug may no longer be illegal doesn't mean that a public safety employer can't prohibit employees from using the drugs. Uh, we've seen that as a basic principle in disciplinary cases for years and years. That is the position that the International Association of Chiefs of Police is taking, the fire chiefs are taking, saying something simply because marijuana is no longer illegal in whatever state this is doesn't mean you can use it without disciplinary consequences. And that position that's being taken by employers which is not an unreasonable position based on, upon where the case law has been for the last 30, 40 years, that position is going to mean we're going to see a bunch of police and fire and corrections fired over using marijuana off-duty. And this time next year, we're going to have a lot of cases on this that tell us what the legal landscape will be. 
The other thing I wanted to mention is that if you thought that PUMA was an unusual acronym, you should see the acronyms for some of these marijuana legalization bills. I think New Jersey's takes the cake. Uh, the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Enforcement Assistance and Marketplace Modernization Act. Uh, really? Uh, think about that for a moment. And yes, indeed, New Jersey's marijuana legalization law is known as CREAM. You can't tell me that was an accident. These legislators are having entirely too much fun with this issue. Okay, now let's move down to Texas for a Facebook case. A little bit different uh, fact pattern in this case versus uh, the normal Facebook case that you see where somebody is being disciplined for their off-duty use of Facebook. Uh, this one actually involves a police officer uh, who spent quite a bit of time publishing videos and publishing videos through Facebook, among others, and ended up getting fired over the issue. And uh, the question is going to be whether or not there's any constitutional protection for what he was doing. So uh, what's this all about? It involves a police officer in Waco, Texas, by the name of Stanley Mason. And in 2016, Mason began creating Facebook videos, and he had a lot of different topics, a lot of important topics that I think we could all be in agreement on are topics of public interest, no matter how you come down on these topics. So he was talking about, for example, police suicides, uh, voting rights, the rights of citizens, other topics related to policing. And these videos, which he initially posted on Facebook, later evolved into a blog uh, that he entitled Behind the Blue Curtain. Uh, and he started publishing this blog in 2017. You can incidentally still find the blog. It's still online. Uh, Mason doesn't publish too often. I think the last post that I saw was about five months ago. Uh, but we'll post the URL with our show notes. Uh, you can find it in various places, but uh, including blogtalkradio.com, which is a blog aggregator, one of many that are out there. So at any rate, Mason uh, is now fully fledged into the blogosphere, uh, and the department finds out about it. And eventually it lands on the desk of then-police chief Ryan Holt. And the reason it ended up on his desk is a fellow officer made a complaint about the videos. In fact, as Holt started looking into the whole thing, he found that several officers had voiced concerns over the messages in Mason's videos. Uh, the department investigated the complaints, uh, concluded that Mason's videos didn't discredit or reflect unfavorably on the department, and close the investigation without any discipline. Uh, all's well and good so far, right? Well, in 2018, an incident occurred involving another officer who Mason claimed failed to timely warn Mason of a threat made on Mason's life by an arrestee. In the same year, Mason filed a second complaint, different incident, 
involving Mason's belief that a backup officer on a domestic violence call uh, took too much time to arrive. And in early 2019, Mason quits. Uh, he resigns. And he cites in his resignation letter, uh, quote, feeling threatened by his treatment in the department uh, and that he is resigning because of, quote, concerns regarding his personal safety. Mason then sues the city and former chief Holt, claiming, among other things, that Holt violated the Fourth Amendment's prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures by viewing the online videos. Okay, so that's the claim here. The police chief looking at the videos posted to the Internet violated the search and seizure rules given to us by the Fourth Amendment. Uh, you can probably tell already how this one is going to come out. And it, uh, it ends up in the federal court for the Western District of Texas, and the court says no Fourth Amendment violation. Why? The court does a pretty good job of going through how you analyze these Fourth Amendment cases. Uh, the court says, look, we ask a couple of questions at the outset. Uh, does the individual, who's ever doing the suing here, does this individual, uh, has he shown that whatever information he's trying to preserve as private uh, really was private, really was kept private? And secondly, we ask whether the expectation of privacy is one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. Now, normally those two tests are conflated into one. We just ask in the search and seizure cases, did the employee have a reasonable expectation of privacy in whatever? In this case, the videos, it could be in the employee's locker or desk. That's just how you approach these privacy cases. And the court says, uh, no. Mason did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And here's a, a quote from like three sentences in the court's opinion. What a person knowingly exposes to the public, even in his own home or office, is not a subject of Fourth Amendment protection. Broadcasting one's views to the World Wide Web surely creates no reasonable expectation of privacy. Mason voluntarily, on a social media platform designed to disseminate opinions, posted a video for the world to see, yet now claims to have an expectation of privacy. Not so, says the court, and concludes with, quote, Holt, did not search or seize Mason in any manner implicating the Fourth Amendment. And as I said, this is a bit of a duh sort of case, right? If you post something online, uh, I mean, I've given the caution for years, even if you post it in a private group, uh, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And certainly if you're posting something for all the world to see, like posting a video on Facebook or creating a blog that uh, any of us can find on the internet, 
you're not going to have any privacy rights in whatever it is you say. You, you say. It may well have free speech rights under the First Amendment. That's going to depend upon what you say and the impact on your employer, but you're not going to have any privacy rights. Now let's go to Missouri for another Facebook case. This one, a closer call. This one's a pretty interesting case. Uh, it involves the St. Peter's Police Department in Missouri, and the department created a text messaging group to update officers about local Black Lives Matter protests. It's unclear from the court's opinion, by the way, whether the department created this group or whether individual officers did, and the department simply blessed it. But there is no question but that the fact that the employer knew about this group uh, had access to the mess messages that were being posted on uh, through the text group and had the ability to shut it down. So at any rate, uh, let's just call it a department text messaging group with the caveat that may be not quite right, but the distinction is irrelevant. So uh, the text group uh, is designed to allow officers to share up-to-date information about local uh, BLM protests. And over time, there's mission creep, right? Uh, the officers who are in the group start sharing unrelated content. And finally, Officer Brian Bresnahan, let's call him plaintiff, I'll indicate how this case comes out. He joins the group. Uh, and he sends the group a video from an animated sitcom that's called Paradise PD. And the video shows a black police officer who accidentally shot himself with a media headline stating, another innocent black man shot by a cop. Uh, to Bresnahan, of course, the video satire and a parody of BLM protests, and he shared the, uh, the video because he was critical of the protests. But, you know, you share any video like that to a group, and somebody's going to complain, and another officer in the group complained, and the next morning the police chief uh, calls Bresnahan in on the carpet, berates him, orders him to resign, and tells him that if he refused, he would open an investigation and recommend to the city administrator that Bresnahan be fired. Bresnahan resigns. Missouri is essentially a non-union state as far as police is concerned, are concerned. Uh, so Bresnahan resigns, sues the city, and claims he was retaliated against for exercising his First Amendment right to free speech. And this goes up to a federal court of appeals, the Eighth Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals, which is kind of in the center Midwest portion of the country. And the court rejects the city's attempt to have Bresnahan's loss, a lawsuit dismissed. So how does the court take a look at this? The court says, first of all, uh, under the Supreme Court's decision in Garcetti versus Sabalos, we have to look at whether or not Bresnahan was acting as a private citizen, 
when he posted the video, that could potentially be constitutionally protected, or whether he was acting as a public employee, in which case under Garcetti, the posting of the video would not be constitutionally protected, uh, no matter what the content of the video was. And the court ends up saying, we conclude the speech was not made pursuant to his duties. So the group text was used, says the court, for both work-related and unrelated messages. Bresnahan's video falls in the latter category. Uh, he, it was free, the video was free for everybody to share and respond to. Uh, and uh, he, Bresnahan himself, has said, I was acting as a private citizen throughout this entire process. And the court says, at this stage of the proceeding, we're at a motion to dismiss where we have to accept all of the allegations in the complaint as being true. At this stage of the proceeding, we're going to accept that Bresnahan was acting as a private citizen and posting the video. That means the video could be subject to constitutional protection. So he's gotten over the Garcetti versus Sabalos hump. Next problem that he's got to face is whether or not this speech concerns a matter of public concern. Only speech that deals with a matter of public concern is constitutionally protected in this context. So what's public concern? The court says, Something involves a matter of public concern if it relates to any matter of political, social, and other concern to the community or when it is a subject of legitimate news interest. And the court says, pretty easy here, right? Uh, BLM was in the news, protests, uh, the whole question of policing was in the news, particularly in the Midwest. Think Ferguson. Uh, this clearly was a, uh, a video about a matter of public concerns. Uh, and the court says, look, I'm quoting, at a broader level, the video also appears to criticize how the media characterizes police shooting of black men because speech criticizing the media's coverage of a particular subject qualifies as a matter of concern, we find that taken as a whole, uh, the video's content supports the argument that this speech is a matter of public concern. So Bresnahan is now two for two, but he's not done yet. So uh, test number three is uh, if speech is shared only with co-workers as opposed to the press or public, that weighs against a finding that the speech is a matter of public concern. And the court says, well, yeah, but then that isn't quite a bright line rule. And here, uh, we can't overlook the fact that Bresnahan's co-workers were police officers, uh, but we still think, given the context, BLM, legitimate news interest, uh, the media's coverage of police. We think given the context that his speech, the posting of the video, was a matter of public concern. So does that mean Bresnahan wins? No, uh, because this case was decided on a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. All the court is saying is 
it's possible, depending upon the facts, that uh, this speech is still not constitutionally protected. We're just saying Bresnahan has crossed the first few hurdles. So we're sending this case back down to the trial level to figure out whether or not the speech is protected. So what's going to go on at the trial court? Uh, the Court of Appeals doesn't say it, but it's pretty obvious what's going to happen. Uh, an employer can still punish speech that would otherwise be constitutionally protected if the speech causes a level of disruption and harm to the department that justifies restricting the speech. That's going to be where the real action is in this case. When you get back down to the trial level, remember another officer complained of this. Courts, The trial court will be looking at the level of disruption, the officer-to-officer uh, hate and discontent, if there was any, we'll look at whether or not the city got complaints from outside the police department. We'll generally be focusing on the harm to the employer of the speech in deciding whether or not the speech is constitutionally protected. Now, the Supreme Court did say a long time ago that, and I'm quoting here, real, not imagined disruption end quote, is necessary for speech to be punished. I'm not sure the court still feels the same way. This could be a case that has some very long legs and is with us for years, perhaps all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's an interesting case. I next want to turn to a Me Too case uh, that comes out of uh, Illinois, so what do I mean by Me Too? Because that phrase is used in a lot of different contexts. I'm using it in the labor relations context. A Me Too clause in a collective bargaining agreement says something like, in year two, the wage increase for members of the bargaining unit will be 2%, making that number up, 2%. Unless any other union negotiating with the employer receives more. And if another union gets more, the union that has the Me Too clause gets what the other union gets. Sometimes these are called most favored nations clauses, but most commonly you hear them referred to as Me Too uh, clauses. There has been, by the way, a big debate among various labor boards around the country whether Me Too clauses are even a mandatorily negotiable topic. And labor boards are really deeply split on this issue. Uh, so if you're dealing with a Me Too clause, I recommend you check into your state's rulings on whether or not Me Too clauses are negotiable in the first place. Why wouldn't they be negotiable? After all, they deal with wages, and wages is a mandatory subject of bargaining. Well, the reason that some labor boards say that Me Too clauses are not mandatorily negotiable is that they inevitably cause harm to whatever other labor unions are out there 
trying to negotiate their own contract. They make those unions pay not to pay in the context of the construction of a total compensation uh, settlement, pay not just for wages and benefits that impact their members, but also for the wages and benefits of the group covered by the Me Too clause. So you're making a union bargain for other unions. And the labor boards that don't like Me Too clauses say you can't impair somebody else's bargaining process through the use of a Me Too clause. Now, uh, how is the dividing line? What's the count on either side of the line? Um, I haven't looked at it in a few years. Last time I looked, it was roughly evenly divided uh, among states. Well, Me Too clauses are legal in Illinois. And the case I'm going to talk about is going to describe uh, how they work and who gets to decide whether there's been a violation. So this one's a little bit factually complicated. Bear with me. Uh, There are three employers that are involved here. Cook County, Chicago's county, the clerk of the circuit court of Cook County, that's a second employer, and the office of the chief judge of the circuit court of Cook County, that's a third employer. So you can tell these are court system employees and they're divided up into three different uh, bargaining units or three different uh, employers who have the ability to negotiate. These three employers, I'm just going to call them the employers from now on, have entered into a total of five collective bargaining agreements with unions such as the Illinois Fraternal Order of Police Labor Council and uh, the Teamsters Union, Local 700. Each of those five labor agreements contains a Me Too provision requiring that the employer give union members, the employers, increases or more favorable treatment to match any increases given any other union. You might ask, if everybody's got a Me Too clause, isn't that kind of like a circular firing squad? I mean, why would the Me Too clause ever be triggered under those circumstances? Why not just simply do coalition bargaining where all the unions sit down with all the employers and you end up with one collective bargaining agreement? But it's Illinois, and there are mysteries in Illinois, uh, and we'll just have to accept this as one of those mysteries. So uh, in 2019, the FOP is bargaining, uh, and it is bargaining with the Forest Preserve District of Cook County, uh, and that's one of the employers covered by the Me Too clause. Uh, They can't reach an agreement, so they go to binding arbitration. And the arbitration award increases wages, health insurance benefits, and disability benefits. Uh, Subsequently, the FOP and Local 700 file grievances against all the other employers. Uh, Yes, I just said that, that it was a 
arbitration decision on wages in favor of the FOP that has now resulted in the FOP filing a grievance saying, we want for this bargaining unit what we achieved in the other bargaining unit. Told you it's a little bit uh, complicated. So uh, the FOP, Local 700, the Teamsters have filed grievances saying, me too. The employers react by not processing the grievances, going into court and seeking a declaratory judgment and they also want a stay in the arbitration proceedings. They lose in the trial court, and the case comes up to the Illinois Court of Appeals. And the question is, who decides whether or not a Me Too clause is violated? And they, uh, I'll give you the bottom line from the court and then give you the rationale. Uh, the bottom line is an arbitrator decides under each of these collective bargaining agreements. Uh, the court says, look, we've got a philosophy in Illinois in our statute that disputes as to the interpretation and meaning of collective bargaining agreements should be resolved by final and binding arbitration. Here we have five collective bargaining agreements. Each one has exactly the same definition of grievance. Uh, a definition that calls a grievance a difference or dispute with respect to the interpretation and application of the contracts. The agreements all describe an arbitrator's scope of authority. Uh, and so it makes sense, says the court, that these Me Too grievances are going to be decided by an arbitrator. Uh, but the court says the employers argue here that having these issues decided by an arbitrator would require the arbitrator to improperly consider and interpret things other than the express language of the agreements. So uh, what does that mean? The uh, court doesn't do a good job of explaining it, but I'm, I'm just betting here based on context that uh, what the court is really saying is, or the, the employers are arguing, that you can't simply consider that interest arbitrator's wage award on its own because there were a lot of different factors that went into that arbitration opinion. There were various settlements on different elements of the total compensation package. And an arbitrator's going to have to consider that to decide whether or not the Me Too clause is even triggered. I'll bet anything. That's what the employer's argument was. And the Court of Appeals says, well, you know, so what under these circumstances? Under the language of the contract, a grievance arbitrator's decision is to, base, is to be based solely on his interpretation of the language of the agreements, and an arbitrator may look for guidance from many sources. I'm quoting now. Indeed, an arbitration award will be overturned as not drawing its essence from a collective bargaining agreement if it is based on a body of thought, feeling, policy, or law outside of the agreement. However, an arbitration hasn't even taken place here. So it's premature to suggest that the arbitrator's decision is improper. 
Because an arbitrator can look to various sources for interpretive guidance, the employer's argument is rejected. Go ye forth to arbitration. Uh, and so far, uh, there's no indication that we have any sort of published arbitration award on this. Uh, I'm, as you can tell, probably not a favor of Me Too clauses. Uh, I don't like them when I'm bargaining a contract for my client. I think they're a sign of weakness. Uh, I also uh, have the feeling that if I'm bargaining a Me Too clause, it's never going to be triggered, right? Or very rarely going to be triggered uh, because it, what it does is it sets the baseline for the employer in negotiating with other unions. It gives the employer a reason to say no to more money for other unions. I'd much rather be in the position of having the employer with the flexibility to give another union a bigger wage increase and then come back and hit the employer at the bargaining table next time around. I'd much rather have that than a Me Too clause where the employer, I've given the employer a defense. Um, against giving another union a wage increase. So I'm not a big fan of these things. Uh, they're, uh, they're permissible in many of the states uh, out west. They tend to be more illegal in eastern states. Uh, but uh, I'd suggest staying away from them. But if they are legal, they are enforceable. And that's what this Illinois case says. Well, that's it for the March 2023 edition of First Thursday. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to be in Las Vegas in three weeks. Go to LRIS.com to uh, see the agenda for our collective bargaining uh, seminar. As usual, we've got some great speakers lined up for you from across the country, and it'll be a good time in Las Vegas. So with that... This is Will Aitchison signing off.